Did you know there is no such thing as an Australian property market? Mm. Not even a Sydney market or a Melbourne market, Brisbane market or a Perth market for that matter. I know, you hear it all the time, right? Mm -hmm. When you hear the houses have gone up or down 2% last month, you need to know that it's never actually true. And in this episode, we're going to explain why. Welcome to your first home buyer guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today we're talking about why there is no single property market in this country. Despite property predictions and monthly data reports that suggest otherwise, every house does not go up and down in value at the same rate across the board. And I've been doing some research on 11 different properties over a 10-year period, and they all performed completely differently. And today we're going to dig into why some did amazingly well and why some tanked. But before we get into that, there is a very special house behind you in the video this week, Megan. Do you want to tell us about it? It is. I am going to take you all on a journey. This is my home. I bought this in September 2020 in Brisbane and I paid $1,012,000 for it. Yes, even down to that much. Uh, And I spent two years doing the designs for it and it's going to go through about a 10 to 12 months renovation. I'm going to take you on the journey and share the progress with you and also give you little tips, hints and uh, things to avoid, mistakes to avoid along the way. So I hope you enjoy it. What a treat. What I should do is intersperse it with my old um, renovation story. I always thought I was going to take people on a journey, never did. (laughs) I've got lots of photos, I could talk about it, but we're excited to go through your journey with you. Let's hope I'm not coming on swearing and being a potty mouth every other week. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's potty mouth is my job. It's a very pretty house for anyone who's not looking at it. It's weatherboard. It's one of those classic sort of, is that a classic Queenslander? It's an Ashgrovian Queenslander. So Mm. it's a little bit interperiod between uh, the Queenslander and Art Deco. So it's got quite a lot of Art Deco features internally. Uh, But there was was very few designs in this particular um, subdivision in the 1930s uh, in this this area. Uh, and, And a lot of them are really similar. So it's actually only when you renovate them that you get some differentiation between designs. So watch this space. 
Lovely. Well, I can't wait. I'm very excited about that because I love a renovation and I do love I do love a pretty weatherboard too. So here we go. All right. <laughs> All right. So Veronica, do you want to explain the research and how you went about it, why you did it in the first place and what we can learn from it? So I actually did it because I can't help myself, but I'm curious. You're a curious creature. <laughs> if you if you really think about it. So some time ago I asked Kent Lardner if, I don't know if we've actually interviewed Kent on this podcast, we have. have we? But yep. we have interviewed Kent. Yep. Um, we've done a, oh, yeah, we did a um, the Where to Buy for Investors workshop, workshop. we did with Kent, mm. of course. So he's a big data guru in the property space, right? And some time ago, I said, Kent, can you just give me a list of properties that have transacted over a 10-year period? So they all sold at one point and then they all sold at another mm. point 10 years later because I want to do some comparisons. And the last time I did this exercise, or I should say the first time I did this exercise, I had to manually go through <laughs> databases trying to pluck these things out and it was a nightmare. But I learned so much. And I did it originally in one suburb, like in Roselle in Sydney, which is close to where my office is. Mm. So that I did that way back probably over 10 years ago now. And so I wanted to do it across a wider area. And so what I did, um, and look, and I've just plucked some of the examples, but he did, he gave me all of New South Wales and he gave me all properties that had uh, transacted either at the very end of 2011, very early 2012. Oh, he and then really again, is a data guy, isn't he? Oh, years, he And then you awesome. can sort through all this crap and I get this spreadsheet and it's <laughs> woohoo and then I get to play with it. So and each of these properties had resold after 10 years. So it might be give or take a couple of months as to exactly 10 years, but it's close enough for, for my purposes. Right. And so all of these properties were based in New South Wales. Now, whilst people might say, oh, well, they're only New South Wales, what about if it was in Queensland or Victoria or elsewhere? The reality is that the principles apply regardless. And so what I'm looking at is, you know, if I spent X amount of dollars at one point of time, in 10 years' time, how much more money could I have, right? Yes. And so, so the purchase prices are reasonably similar in some of these examples so that people can compare apples with apples, even though they might be in different geographic locations. Well, to be honest, this first, I don't know why I did this originally where I did this, but the actual original purchase prices range from 80000 <laughs> to 296000 And I have got some comparisons that are line ball um, that are toward the end that we'll, we'll talk about. But all the properties, as I mentioned, are based in New South Wales, but there we've got examples in rural, regional and urban locations, mm. as well as houses, villas, units and land. So it's a very, I found this fascinating because it challenged some of my own assumptions. Some of the overperformers actually were things that I wouldn't necessarily recommend people buy. Um, there were some common ingredients though. And so there's, I'll, I'll wait till the end. So I don't want to spoil the fun. You got to listen to the end to find out what's the one common denominator uh, with the high performers. But can I tell you that some of these results, like if you're looking purely at just the sale prices, right? Some went from only returning 60% of the original sale price. So that means if you spend $100,000 after 10 years, you only got 60 grand in profit. On top of your initial outline. Yep. Um, and others produced nearly 400%, which means if you spend 100000 on the initial outlay, you got back 400000 in profit. Now, you got to dig because that's not exactly true. When I re when I really dug into these, I could find the backstories in each one, and so that's not exactly true. But some once I adjusted for for all these weirdness, which I'll talk about in a minute, you know, some did 
you know, the as I said, returning 60% after 10 years, that, that's a poor investment. It really is. Well, it, okay, so let's pull that apart because, you know, that's quite a um, quantitative, subjective kind of analysis, but there's a lot <laughs> that sits behind that because we're talking about some properties that have actually returned, but mm. you haven't got any examples of where properties have resold for the same sort of money, um, and, and we certainly have seen that. Yes. And and I would say that that's poor, uh, either similar money as you paid 10 years down the track or less money than you paid, and we've seen that in unit, uh, brand new units, off-plan units. Um, so we're not doing any of that. You haven't done any of that analysis. Um, they're not included in this, this uh, research, are they? That's a very good point, Megan. And in fact, we probably have we done an episode on how you can lose money. Yes, on we have. We have because it's one of my favorite topics. How easy it is to we lose money. We can do a new one because we there's a whole it. new set of circumstances now that can cause you to lose money. <laughs> so That's we true. can we can rehash that one. So I guess yes, in the context of the, yes, you can lose money in property. Returning sixty percent over a ten year period is actually a good outcome. But Compared if you to say. Losing. Yeah. Compared to losing. But if you say, right, well, we know what is the most risky type of property that means you have a higher, higher propensity to losing money, which is that off the plan type stuff, and we take them out of the equation, let's look at properties that are likely to go up in value. Yeah. <laughs> and now we can get critical about whether 60% return over 10 years is good or bad. <laughs> so we're going to use that as a baseline. So 60% in, in this research is poor return. Uh, taking yep. away those things that have lost money or not made any money. Um, and I think that's really important because you can walk away with less money if you make really poor decisions or haven't got the right information going into the process. So so it, it is relative in a, in a, uh, in a sense um, because we're not looking at those properties that have not only underperformed but you know, actually cost people money. So I, I think that's uh, an important one for us to talk about because uh, let's go and have a look at what you have actually had a look at. Mm. I, I will say also why it's important and why it's important is because, you know, for an investor, it's obviously important. And the thing is that uh, some investors will talk about you got to buy for yield. That means you've got to get high rent, but usually high rent comes at the cost of capital growth. And because capital growth, that the ability to snowball your equity or your wealth is so powerful that rent isn't compoundable and all that sort of stuff like at the end of the day, property investment for rental income is a really not a great investment, right? Mm. But if you compare, you think, well, if I could triple my money in 10 years or I could just get half of it back as a profit, then what are you going to do? You're going to try to triple it, aren't you? You're going to try mm. to look at, well, what can I do to actually increase um, my gain? And if you're going to live in the property, so that's for an investor, but also if you're going to live in the property, I know in my business, I encourage my owner occupiers to think like investors because when they go, particularly if you're a first home buyer and you go to upgrade, you want, you know, we talk about this in the, um, the what do we call it? The stepping stone strategy. You want your first property to do massive amount of heavy lifting for you yeah. so that you can upgrade. Yeah. If you're, if you have bought a property that only goes up 60% in 10 years and you go, you want to upgrade and you're trying to buy a property that's gone up 300% in, in 10 years. Like the gap between what you're selling and what you're trying to buy is huge. So this mm. is really important concepts. 
both and, and it, 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 I guess the basis and, and um, something that we, we want people to understand is it's the opportunity cost of what you could have done had you made a different decision. It's an economic concept uh, and it's it, we're just pointing out that 60% might be might feel good, but what if you could have made a different decision and it could have been, you know, 100%, 200%, yeah. whatever the yeah. case may be. So it's the opportunity cost of what you have missed out on because you've made one decision or another. So let me, I'll take you through the 11 properties. And what I will say too, I made a video of this for the Suburb Help website. It's not actually on the Suburb Help website yet, but I'm going to put the link in to my little Loom video. So one way or the other, whether it's on Suburb Help or whether you're still looking in Loom, either or, I will make sure that the link is available at the end of this in the show notes. So if you want to watch the video, I've created two videos. The first one is like a top line just explaining, you know, why different properties do different things and you get to sort of see some visuals and whatever. And the second one is actually the deep data dive, which which is more about well, well, how does my brain work? You know, when I when someone says to me, "Oh, I did I did really well in property. I made money." My immediate thought is, "Did you benchmark it? What did you <laughs> compare it to? Is there an opportunity cost there?" That's my, my brain just immediately thinks those things, and I go digging. And when you dig in each of these eleven eleven properties, every single one has a backstory every single one and so you know a lot of what we do on this podcast is we're trying to teach you to think deeper about property and to dig deeper and understand more about the decisions that you're making and that's why i find these sort of case studies so fascinating <laughs> let's get into it all right We've got some graphs there they're obviously not going to um translate well to those who are just listening uh but we'll <laughs> So I'll, I'll talk visually so we'll start i'm going to start with the lowest performer right so remembering that there's all these sort of um different types of unit uh, different types of properties the lowest performer the one that only returned 60 percent over the 10-year period was a little two-bedroom unit in harris park in sydney right harris park is just next to uh Parramatta, and this is and we talk about in this podcast we talk about if you're going to buy a unit in sydney you, you know sometimes you want to buy you want to buy an older style unit a three-story brick walk-up this unit is Top that north facing yeah this unit is actually all of those things and yet it was the lowest performer and so this is a really was it the cheapest to purchase as well uh no it wasn't the cheapest okay. was actually a block of land which i'll get to that's number there's a good lesson that's number four <laughs> well actually it wasn't a block of land it became a block of land but anyway i don't want to spoil that one so the cheap that the lowest performer was a unit it Oh, I think they spend about 250000 from memory. I should have put all these notes in here, shouldn't I? Um, watch the video if you want that sort of detail, right? So the, it was a two-bedroom unit. Now, when I dug into this, and so, yes, you would think it's the type of property that I say, if you're going to buy a unit in Sydney, this is the sort of thing you look for. Mm. The problem is that that's the type of property, and then you've got location. Now, Harris Park is right on the edge of Parramatta, and right on the edge of Parramatta, in Parramatta, is massive overdevelopment of units so when we say look for an older style not if you can see all the newer stuff like out your window you know what i mean you, you still don't want to be close even if you're not buying a brand new unit you don't want to be close to brand new units 
really. But also looking a little bit forward to it might not just be what's around you currently. It could be what's coming up. And there are some sites, and we've talked about this, and you can learn about them on on um, your first home buyer guide. But there are some sites that you can go to that actually log the information about applications mm. for new developments, what's been approved, what's in, in approval process, what's been approved, what's under construction, what's close to completion. So you can actually get really early data um, freely available online. Yep. Really, really important. So that's impacted. But the actual property itself, and remember we talk about the floor plans and aspect and all these sorts of things we talk about a property. This floor plan is awful. It's got a tiny, tiny bathroom, which has got a laundry squished into it. It's got a tiny, tiny kitchen at the other end of the apartment and tiny, tiny living room. You know, it's just not a very nice layout. It's just not a very nice apartment. So the fact yeah. that it's not that nice, even though it's you could tick other boxes and always scary about ticking boxes, so it's an underperformer. The next one, the next worst performer, so number 10 on the list, is another apartment. And this one's in Penrith, but it was built in the 90s. And, you know, when I looked at the history of this one, it sort of, it only seems to do well if the rest of the market's doing well. Like a lot of these oh, properties. It's a rising tide. Yeah. Mm. So this is what you be careful of. Like so it one of the reasons the most of its actual growth in value came in the last year. And so it sat there doing nothing for the nine years before then. Mm. And so that owner is probably one of the many investors that got out, if it was an investor that is, you know, mm. a lot of investors got out in 2021 of the market yes. because they could see that finally they made some money on their poor investments. And I think this was one of those. And and there was a lot, a large number of people who did that, uh, which of course has created a whole other problem, which is a lack of rental supply now, but that's another episode. Exactly. And we do have an episode on that, don't we? And what's interesting about that one, whereas with the other one, you could really see the location, lots of, you know, lack of uh, or an oversupply, massive oversupply impact. This particular one isn't so much, the, the clues to me isn't so much about whether there's an oversupply or anything. It's really in the sales history of that particular unit. So I could go back in that particular unit and see that that it had gone periods where people owners had lost money when they sold it and then it done right. nothing, you know what I mean? So you can actually track sales of others in the block sometimes. Have um, you you know that you know those buyers, Veronica, and you you they're they're crowing about what a bargain they bought because they paid less than what the previous mm, purchases paid for it. Oh, that just red lights, alarm bells start ringing. Just think, oh, my God, what have you gone and done? Yep, bought a dog. And funnily enough, though, when you look at some of these histories of these properties, and you know what, on realestate.com.au and domain.com.au, you can actually look up addresses of individual properties. So if something's on the market for sale, here's a tip for you, you can then look up their actual, there's a different database in each of these portals where you can look up, you can actually type the address in and look at its sale history. Yeah. And if you can see that there's been times when people have lost money and then made money, the people that lost, you know, got the bargains didn't always make a lot of money either. Yes. It's not like, yeah. you know, yeah, it's the assets crap. So that's why they had the opportunity. There's something about it. Then you need to find it that's before it. you buy it. It's really simple and it's really accessible, this information. And I was like, ah, oh, bong. And then you can see it play out in terms of it underperforming. The next one in our list was a villa, another one in Western Sydney, actually. So far, we have not left Western Sydney, which is a bit of a worry. 
According to this, you'd never buy an apartment in Western Sydney. And I'm not necessarily saying that's that. That's actually not true. No, exactly <laughs> right. It's just these show. This is sample data. Yeah, mm. and they also show what to look for, you know, what how things could play out if, you, if you know, you make bad decisions. Um, a villa in Plumpton. Now, villas, you know, villa units, like this, it's, they're, they're a bit popular in Melbourne actually because they've got land content. They're single-level strata dwellings. And they're like little houses, but they're in a strata. And usually there's only a handful in a complex. They're not usually big complexes. And look, this one, it didn't do too badly. They basically doubled their money in 10 years. And they really didn't do much to it. Um, I looked at the CFA scores. Now, the CFA scores is a socioeconomic indicator that you can get via the ABS. And it's the thing Kent taught us in the Stepping Stone Strategy Workshop. Mm. And, and it's really looking for, well, where are areas of social disadvantage and, and how can that potentially impact on property growth? Because mm. price growth is around income and it's around ability and willingness of people to pay money to live in a place. And so it's, I think it ranks the suburb, it ranks about six out of 10. So it's not actually too bad. But when I looked at this particular villa unit and it's surround, it just looks really poorly maintained, like really sh shoddy. And so the whole complex from yeah. a, I guess from a strata management point of view, it's not being cared for. That's it. And so mm. whilst, um, you know, villas can be quite good because of there's, you know, up, upgraders, first-time buyers, you know, investors, they all like villa units. So there's usually, you know, a nice varied uh, buyer pool Board for market. them. But this particular one, and this is why it's so important if you're buying strata to look at the complex, look at the building, because I think that that potential is what held this one back. Mm -hmm. Then our fourth worst performer was, you know, I'm looking at the graph here. Oh, that's the vacant block of land. So actually it's, it's in a small country town outside of Forbes, right? And it was a 1920s bungalow that they knocked down. So when they purchased it 10 years earlier, it had the house on it, and then they knocked it down and sold it as a vacant block of land. You could argue it's a, vac a value add, but also the problem with that is that they had to pay demolition costs. And I looked up mm. that. It was an average $16,000 to demolish a house. Whether it was that or wasn't that there, I don't know. Um Given that they spent eighty thousand dollars to buy it in the first place, right? It's a high percentage of the purchase price. It is, yeah. In terms it, of overcapitalizing. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, they did manage to still double their money. Even, I mean, they almost doubled their money after taking out the cost of demolition. But then, depending when they demolished it, like they would have no rental income, no rental income from that house. Mm. You know, so their holding costs are higher. Um, so I don't, I couldn't work out when they demolished it. Like, if they demolished it just before selling as a value add. You know, maybe it worked. But across the road from that, I, I, what I'd be worried about in buying in a town like that is it's tiny town. I'd want to know, are there any plans to to build that town up? You know, mm. are there, what are the plans in terms of development? You know, there's a big... What's the economic attic. base? What are the yeah. employment opportunities? Well, what are the schooling opportunities? There. Yeah. So it did go up, but I'd say... Mm, that to me just seems risky for those reasons. Mm. Then our next one I'm looking on the chart here is oh, so it's, um, a house in a place called Eshel Park, which is we're back in Western Sydney now. So that did that did pretty well, although it had been renovated since it had um, in that time. So I had to work out a sort of an adjustment for renovating. And so they did have a you know a fairly decent return because they renovated. But I looked at those CFA scores again, 
And that's, um, we're getting lower than Plumpton there. Like I think it was the number four out of 10. So I'd be thinking, okay, but I, what I do like to do is it, how many other renovated houses have been selling in this area? Like, well, who's moving into the area? How is mm. that changing? And you could see that there is some gentrification happening. Um, but also when I looked at history, I could see that once again, I felt that that was a property that probably benefited partly from the renovation and partly from the rising market. Mm. And so I just feel like maybe that's a bit too, I'd be a bit nervous about buying in that area without really understanding, is it gentrifying? Is it on the cusp of change? Or mm. is that just a result of the rising market in 2021? Mm. So next on our list right, was um, a house in Wellington. And this is country New South Wales, out near Dubbo. And this is a bit of a classic one, big house with huge sheds. I would say the sheds were better than the house, like <laughs> in a way, um, and nice rolling hills and all the rest of it. But it's another example of where someone's bought a property and you can actually look back in this one in the history, not only whether houses have sold and lost money or, or made money in history, but how many times someone's tried to sell a house in history? So this is one where the owners had tried to sell it, I think it was in 2017, and then they tried again Top in 2018, market. then they tried mm -hmm. again in 2019, <laughs> and they tried again in 2020, and then finally the market rose again enough, and they had renovated it, they had done a renovation to it, but finally the market rose enough to give them a, a return. So in this area, Veronica, is it rural mm. or just regional? It's it's rural, although this is not a rural lot. This is right. this is like a, one of those lifestyle. This is a smaller lots. house lot in mm. a rural area. It was on uh, two thousand two hundred twenty-five or two thousand two hundred fifty-five square meters. So mm. what you call a lifestyle block in a in a in a. You're rural not running area. cattle on that. You've, you've no. got chickens. <laughs> you might have a goat. <laughs> yeah, and you could see your neighbours, you know, that type of rural mm -hmm. um, property. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I said, you know, it might be a nice place to live. And if you're buying there to live and to settle down, it might be something of interest. But really you've got to think, oh, those people Quite tried. a market, isn't it? Well, that's the thing. Yeah. They tried and failed to sell for a number of years. So effectively it took them four years to sell it. Mm. Ouch. That's scary because if you buy in that area and, you know, particularly post lockdowns where there's been this migration to the country areas mm. and what if that doesn't isn't sustainable in a particular area you know you too could find yourself you want to upgrade you got five years to you know to plan that out yeah life can change pretty pretty dramatically and particularly if you had an impetus to start actually looking to sell five years earlier and you can't achieve that your kids might be finished school by the time you can actually get into the area that you wanted to be in imagine if you got divorced you know, like imagine oh, you're if you're trying to sell for five years. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> your whole life is put on hold. Yeah. So you've got to be or careful. Or you have to dramatically drop to, I mean, there's a price for everything. Everything will sell in any market. Anything will sell in any market, but the price has to meet the market. So that, that what I'm starting to see is perhaps a, uh, a bit of a pattern that maybe it was overpriced compared to what people were prepared to pay at the time, but also a very limited small market for it in terms yes. of buyer. Demographic. Yeah, yeah. So they probably were relying on a Sydney sider to go and buy it. <laughs> now I don't know that for a fact because I didn't ring the agent and talk to them, but um, I could have. Like, and and to be honest, you know, if you're if you're um looking at buying a property and you think that's 
the case and you can find evidence of who else tried to sell it, what other agent tried to sell it, it doesn't hurt to pick up the phone and talk to them. Mm, absolutely. Yes. So then just next- be careful with that one. It's it's it can be a very tricky one because <laughs> if uh if that agent catches wind of what you know, agents can be pretty sneaky and they are pretty keen to secure a listing. So be careful how much information you give. But we always believe that if you're buying a property in an area, talk to an agent that isn't currently selling a property in that area but has sold in that area before. They'll tell you an awful lot of negatives about it. That's great information to have. Yeah, and you got to have like I think what Megan's alluded to there as well is you got to sort of just take a little bit with a grain of salt because they might have something else they're trying to sell you. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which might be better. Mm. Might be better, but also you got to think, okay, they got some bias in there. Yeah. All right. Our next one on the list is a villa, another villa unit in Coffs Harbour. And this one actually was really interesting because it looked once I sort of took out the um prices uh of renovating. So this had been totally renovated, this particular mm. um, and it so it returned about it looked doubled money, but then you when you take out the actual cost of renovating, it's obviously reduced its overall gain, if you like, but it still was a decent performer. And it was one of six, you know, it's on land, it's single level. It Coffs Harbour can be close to the beach. Yes, and it's this was walking distance to the town. Oh, lots, okay. of, lots of good things going mm. for this particular property. I thought it looks like a pretty decent performer. But here's a tip. Look at the recent sales in the complex as well, right? So now I'm doing research and just about this sold in the December 2021. And in January 22, another one, one of the six, so they all pretty much got the same floor plan, sold, and it was unrenovated. So the one that I've got in this example, it sold for 518000 and the unrenovated one sold for 350000 And after looking at- Dramatic what, difference. Big difference. What you'd spend on- the renovation to bring it up to the 518 sort of standard, there's no way you'd need to spend 168000 Like in a little villa, it's all quite contained. They just yeah. polished the floors, they painted, they they put kitchen, a new bathroom. kitchen in, bathroom. But, they, you know, honestly, you'd be hard put to spend 168000 if you did a really nice cost-effective renovation. So I wouldn't buy the one that was renovated I'd be looking to buy the unrenovated one in this instance. That's interesting, isn't mm. it? That's a, that's a big difference, just yeah. a small renovation. Big mm. difference. And no difference look- in orientation, floor size. All the same. You no, know, all of those sorts of things that we look at for differentiation in pricing. Okay, yeah. all right. Interesting. It all the same to me. So it, it is interesting. It looked to me like owner-occupied as well. So it did look like it wasn't it definitely. You own it for 10 years, you're not a flipper. Right. Mm, So they renovated it, it, lived in it, it looked loved, all those sorts of things. When they bought it, it was a Nana's, you know, you've heard me refer to Nana's Nana's places, Nana's homes. So it was like obviously an older person lived there and loved it, you know. Often the curtains match the Duna cover. Well, there's no Duna cover. It's a, uh, what do they call it? Coverlet? Uh, A (laughs) coverlet. Chenille bedspread. Remember them? (laughs) Match the curtains. Do you know, actually, the funny thing, I think- Probably wallpaper on the walls. Talking about the curtains, I actually think they kept them. (laughs) So weird. They change everything. I was like, oh, those curtains, I think I'll keep them. Mm. Anyway, they're obviously inoffensive. Probably very expensive at the time. Uh, They were just sheer, actually, to be honest. I think they just didn't need- Maybe maybe it was private. Anyway, so that that performed pretty well. The villa and uh, once again, villas villas can be good, you know. But the Plumpton I was Villa didn't like that. Had what about a two hundred percent 
capital gain. Yeah, take out a little bit for renovating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that did well. Now, the next one in our list, this is actually an interesting one, a house in and I always get the pronunciation wrong. It's in Wollongong. It's Anandera, I think it's called. It's 6Ks outside of the, the Wollongong CBD. Um, and it's on 841 square metre block of land, like big, nice big, big block lot. of land. And so when I looked at it, looked into the history, when it was sold back in 2011, it was actually Department of Housing House. So they oh, were, they were, they apparently there was a whole bunch of Department of Housing ha- homes that were sold to owner occupiers. So that's that in itself is evidence of gentrification because mm. it's going from publicly owned to privately owned. So these people bought it. Apparently it was livable, but I tell you, it was one photo at the front that did say it needed renovation, but livable. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's a classic ha- old bring your tool belt. Has yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not a detonate. Was it um renovate, renovate or detonate? Or detonate. Yeah. They didn't detonate it, they renovated it. And you could see that they they done quite a bit inside and outside. They painted, they'd done new kitchen, bathroom, they polished floors, they put decking in, they landscaped and uh, basic landscaping because 841 square meter land is a big block of land to landscape. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it did return very well over what my estimate of the renovation costs. Mm. The interesting thing about that area, the CFA scores down, it's like number two out of 10 or something. So, oh. which is, um, and it, I think that, shows and when i started googling so this is the other thing google the area start mm. looking at forums and hear what people are talking about so mm. there was a lot in there about about you know the changing demographic the fact that it was pretty rough um mm. very very not just working class but a, a lot of as i said that social housing so mm. um and i'm i'm not down on social housing we need it but it, it's in terms of if you're going to buy into an area that's up and coming you want to look for lots of evidence and go back to our gentrification episode, whatever that was. Yeah, and also just be careful. You did mention going to online forums. Um, we did an episode, episode 90, which was on some of the things to be really cautious of when you uh-huh. do get involved in online forums. So um, as with a lot of things, uh, take it as um, a little bit of a rumour, a little bit of information that you might then verify independently of, of the forum because people can have ulterior motives that don't match yours very true which is why i did not look on property forums you can actually find forums of all sorts of stuff you know people moving into the area yeah. well, you know where's the best you know where's the schools all that sort of palaver they're not so much asking about property prices <laughs> um but i'm sure you'll find advice in there oh there's plenty of yeah <laughs> absolutely damn right meaning people damn right there's there's all these armchair experts <laughs> i found that interesting because that would bear further investigation and so like with the um the coffs harbour unit i thought well if the area is gentrifying what would i want to buy there would i want to buy the house that's been renovated or would i want to go and buy a house that i could renovate because you know like if they're going to make this huge gain through their improvements then that's a real opportunity particularly Mm. you know stepping stone strategy right Mm. so Mm. then i started looking well what else is on the market there currently and it just seems to be everyone's getting in there and renovating these houses and selling them interesting so it's like there weren't many unrenovated so it potentially if you got more stock coming on that's been renovated you might find it's more cost effective to buy the renovated one because honestly the price difference didn't seem to be that much different 
So I'd be going in this area if I wanted to buy in this area. I'd be thinking, well, A, I want to make sure it really is gentrifying. And B, I probably want to buy something that's been renovated. Go back to our episode on on should I renovate or renovate not. Renovate or not. Because yeah. at times, you know, you, the value add, you're going to spend more than the, the, what you'd add to the value. And so it, it, bears, um, it bears looking into. But if I could find unrenovated at a big enough discount, I'd go unrenovated. Yeah, personally. and you've got to think about, and, and and this is what we talked about in that episode, was you've got to think about the availability of trades, uh, what's happening with price of materials and availability of materials. Uh, if you've got to move out, you've got to rent somewhere else. So there's there's a lot of factors to take into account when you do your estimates on what a, what a renovation might cost, mm. um, that when you look at your feasibility, you've got to make sure you've got all of those factors coming into play because if you need to spend $15,000 on rent to do a, a project, then that's $15,000 you have to add to the cost of the project. Absolutely. Now, the next two performers I'm going to talk about side by side, and they really surprised me. And I big yeah. disclaimer here, you know <laughs> that we don't like land, house and land packages. Generally. And generally. But sometimes they can actually deliver. And in this particular case, they did. So this is numbers two and three in our list, right? Now, what is very interesting about this, and I and I can't necessarily talk to why these did well, whereas others have not done so well, because there's plenty of examples of people that have lost money in house and land packages for yeah, over 10 years, right? Yeah. So there's a huge element of risk when you're buying in new subdivisions, right? So I, I want to really caveat what I say next by saying don't, take this as saying, oh, great, I'm going to go up buy house and land package and I'm going to be fine. But it shows that if you, uh, and I would hazard there's more luck than good planning because most people don't look at properties the way we do. Um, now, can I ask, Veronica, was this in a uh, Greenfield development? So, mm -hmm. okay, yep. so it wasn't infill in a character area, no. which is what we talk about as being quite positive. It's okay. on the edge of Sydney, literally the Outer edge, the western edge. This is almost. This is Penrith. It's the foothills of the mountains. Bro. Um, I don't think it's so close to the foothills of the mountains that no further development could be done between there and the mountains. But it's right out there, right? Mm. And so, and in in particular, um, there's two houses in the same street, and both of them were bought as vacant blocks of land. So immediately, the nominal growth that looks like on our chart, which we're not showing you here, but you could see if you looked at the video. Jump on the loom video. <laughs> the um one of them went up 300%, the other one went up sort of well, 380% or something. But you got to take out the cost to build the house, right? So, yeah, so what are we looking at here? We're not looking at the purchased house and land packing package. We're looking no. at the purchased land and then plus they the build. The, yeah. Uh project build. Okay, so all of those costs wrapped up together. Yep. So it brings down, but their growth, they still did each of them did over 200% well over 200%, even taking out the, the build cost. So I had to research, well, what would a project home of this sort of size mm. costed back then? So I've done some estimates there. Um, so each block of land, one was bought for, I think, 205000 the other one was bought for 206000 And I'm estimating that one house would have cost about 250000 to build and the other about two hundred. right? The difference, and also I looked at the land size, so both – both of them were on 280 square metre block of land. More blocks, aren't they? For Which outer is tiny. Sydney. Mm. If you're going to be that far out from Sydney, I want more land from that. You know, <laughs> my block of land in Give Newtown is not much yeah. smaller than that, right? You know, <laughs> yeah, and I'm right on a big block city. in Newtown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, 
Whereas when you look at and when you can look at what a standard block of uh, land size is in that area and you can you can look in maps and you can get a sense of, well, are they small for the area or big or whatever? Mm. And they're definitely small for the area. But the big difference, and this is where it's so interesting, is that so those people, there's two different people, one block of land each, same street, same side of the street, right? What's the difference? The difference is what they put on that land. So this is where you call highest and best use. You're familiar with that term, Megan? Absolutely. A uh, uh, quick explanation. So a block of land will have a different zoning depending on the local government area's city plan. And the highest and best use is the most you can get out of that block of land in terms of, of, of yield on it. And I'm not talking about income yield, but yield on the block of land. Now, if it's residentially zoned, you can only put a house on it, but it might be a single story or a double story. If it's zoned um, uh, for units or townhouses, the highest and best use is usually the units or townhouses to the maximum height and the maximum floor area that you can put on that piece of land. So it's actually looking at the zoning and, and all of the, the um, building codes and so forth to determine what is the maximum amount or maximum um, development potential of, of the block um, that would make the most amount of money if you were to develop it to its highest and best use. So in this particular case, two people, exactly, basically identical blocks of land. One has chosen a single-level three-bedroom house and the other one has chosen a double-level four-bedroom house. And just plonking more bedrooms on a block of land isn't necessarily the answer. But by the actual floor plan of the three, the small three-bedroom house was awful. Like it's right. basically... Because it's, I think its footprint might even be slightly bigger than the two-level house as well. So you've got a tiny garden. The living room is absolutely tiny in this. So you've got the three-bedroom house with tiny living. Mm. And also a lot of people in that area, they're having kids and they want four bedrooms. Mm. So mm. you immediately cut and their a bit market of grass. down. And the grass. And also they set back, all of them, and that would be a, a council requirement, the yeah. setback from the front. And the setback in all of them, they've got bigger front yards and backyards, which one of my pet hates, you know. Yes. But, be that as it may, the the two story four bedroom house it just had a better it had more living space you know all the bedrooms upstairs in the same level like it, it just like was it might a, have been more proportional as well. We talk about yeah. the proportions of bedrooms, bathrooms, living areas, garages, getting that exactly. proportion right. Yeah. Um, and if it's not relative and and um, suitable for the demographic of the buyer, then you can really miss the mark just by getting one of those factors wrong in a design. Hundred percent. So. A much smaller buyer pool. You would think of the demographic wanted to buy in this area. A lot of families. Well, the the three bedroom house is too small. Um, the garden's too small. The living area is too small. Whereas the four bedroom house had sort of better garden, um, better balance, and uh, as you're talking about there with the floor plan, better living space. And and I look back at, at the bill cost back then. It was like mm, probably about fifty grand difference back then. And it actually meant that the people, when they sold the four-bedroom house, so two houses, same street, there was about $125,000 difference in sale price. So ultimately, that meant $75,000 extra in the pocket of the people who made a better decision on what mm. to put on the land in the first place. Mm. And if they were investors, they would have got more rent in that time. You know what I mean? Same block of land. And, and a very just, small difference in the cost of the build. Yeah. Interesting. All right. That was so fascinating, what's the upshot here? And the number one. On oh, the, the number one. We haven't even we talked about the highest Talk performer. about number one, which sort of isn't really applicable for um, first home buyers, but does give a little bit of insight into what makes property prices go up a lot. And that is a rezoning. So number one was a 
house on a big block of land in Marylands back in Western Sydney. And obviously back in these days, you know, what is it? End of 2011 or 2012, you wanted to spend sub $300,000 on a property. You're basically looking in, in Western Sydney or country or mm-hmm. regional. You weren't looking in, in the inner city, inner city or the beaches. Not since about the 1960s, would you be looking in the city or, or the beaches for about 300000 oh, I feel that way. But actually early 2000s, you oh, could. You go. I remember. I remember. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that was small though. So this particular um, property had an old house on it and it, had uh, the zoning change that meant that it could be demolished and three tri- uh, like a triplex or three houses could be built on it. Yeah. Um, but inter- this also is just a little bit illustrative as well in that it looks like on paper, like the huge performance, it looks like it returned 400%. But when you are looking right at- Right returns, we'd all like that. Amazing. But did it return 400% is the big question. And this is where data can be sometimes be misleading. Technically, it did return 400%, but only because there was some sort of related party sale at, in 2011, which had a sale price. It was obviously somebody bought a portion of it or sold a portion of the, the, the house to somebody else because the surnames were the same. That's why I know this. Mm. And also I know that before that, the sale before that was more more expensive. So it actually, I think it was eight years earlier or something, cost 400000 as opposed to less than 300000 And so when, once again, this is why looking at the history is so important because we went, oh, my God, they lost money. But actually because of the access we have to databases and we can look at the surnames of the owners, they didn't lose money. Somebody sold a portion of it to someone else who already owned it. And, you know? and herein lies, um, well, it's not the lesson of this, but a really big one, and that is you can't just look at um, high-level data and make decisions based on it. You've got to dig. Not only that, but that actually becomes an example. If someone's looking at the capital growth over that period of time, mm. that actually makes that capital, it actually adds to the capital growth data or the median growth data in a way that's not actually true. Yes. Yeah. And there are lots of anomalies in data. You know, and so I guess the more, and this is why it's important to have big, huge pools of data so that those anomalies, they, they fade away in terms of their individual importance. Mm. But if you're assessing- You don't often always, in regional areas, you don't often have huge amounts of sales data in a year. Mm. It, it may be a town that doesn't turn over a lot of properties. And look, I don't know about the size or the number of households in, in the area that we're talking about. But if you've got a small data pool, then it can be highly, highly, median house price can be highly influenced by an outlier sale. Yeah. Um, and you've got to really look below the information or one or two riverfront um, suburbs or a similar one, beachfront, you know, they can be really influenced by a couple of high higher sales. But that's not actually changed. That price of the average house hasn't actually changed very much. Exactly right. So it just... I, what the reason I do these these case studies because I love to dig and to tell the real story. So there's always a real story, you know. Yeah. So there's some lessons from this, right? The rising tide, you know, I've, you've often heard us say, rising tide does not lift all ships. And in these examples, it did lift all of these ships, yeah. right? But particularly in a hot market, right? Yes, Monica? yes. And yeah. even the C grades, even yes. the crap ones. Yeah, that doesn't make them a good investment. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen again or it might not happen for 20 years. Um, Now, the last big rise, and I talk about Brisbane, the last big rise was about 2002. 
Mm. So you would have had waited had to wait 20 years to get a C-grade property to rise at a reasonable level, and it certainly would have been at an opportunity cost compared to buying an A-grade property during that time. And but, look, hasn't yeah. Brisbane house prices gone up like 41% last year or something? I'm sure there's a lot of C-grades in that, in that lot. Yeah, they're the, they're the first ones that I'm concerned are going to have an impact now that interest rates are rising and people are becoming a bit more discerning and less fearful of missing out. Uh, but that's a whole nother episode. Yes. Yes. Um, another lesson here, don't take data at face value. Learn to look deeper. Learn to interrogate that data. If it looks too good to be true, test it. And also, particularly in um, strata buildings, look at the rest of the complex and look at mm. the, how others have performed in that complex. Yeah, and just because something sold for a price that seems to be comparable to the one that you're looking at purchasing, you do need to look at those other factors because if it's a north-facing balcony versus mm. a western-facing balcony or a southern-facing balcony, there is a price differential between those properties and, and do the free course on how to price a property and you'll start to learn some of those factors that you need to take into account. Layout, room sizes, proportion of bedrooms to uh, car car accommodation to bathrooms to living areas really really important things to differentiate when you're looking at a complex of what might look on like on paper really similar type units good point and actually megan just referred to our free course on how to price a property which if you haven't done it you can go to homebaracademy.com.au forward slash free course you shouldn't be able to forget that url anyway <laughs> um the property history and so we talked about, you know, looking at the history in a strata complex, the actual sales history and the attempted sales history of an individual property also tells a story. That's harder and to find the attempted sales history. Sometimes mm. that data is only available on certain um, subscription-based um, information hubs. So it, it might be worth um, digging in a little bit to find that, but it's, it's not as easy to find in freely. True. Just be aware that it can happen, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's important uh, because it tells mm, a story. Mm, yes. And, you know, and that's a, a thing that if you do talk to agents in the area, they'll usually volunteer that sort of stuff, like <laughs> if they, if they want to sort of, you know, put the knife in. Um, there are anomalies and red herrings uh, in data all the time. And and it just I really I think that local knowledge is the core of understanding so you can your little eyes can light up when you go oh that doesn't make sense mm -hmm. you know because the rest mm -hmm. of the time you wouldn't know unless you actually had some local knowledge and you need to gain that if you're going to buy in an area yeah and if you're buying out of area um, i cannot say more strongly how important it is to have someone on your side a buyer's agent who is local, not mm. a fly-in, fly-out, not a borderless buyer's agent, but someone who is local to the area that knows it in depth and can actually talk to you about the differences between one street, another street, a school catchment, um, what, what sort of other people are in the area, what the demographic's like and, and what people like in those areas because what people mm. like in one area that drives price growth is going to be really different to what people like. I know people that come up from Sydney and Melbourne want to find a brick house with a tiled roof and a formal living area and formal dining area. And those sorts of properties aren't the properties that that are more highly sought after in Queensland. So you've got to know the local aspects of what's going to drive price growth and then layer that over what your requirements are as a home buyer to, to make a decision as to what you should pay for a property um, if it is a bit different to what is most popular in the area. It's so true. I, I remember as a sales agent, you'd love it when someone who's from outer area would come <laughs> along and love something that all the locals hate. <laughs> 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 
Okay. Because it's hard to sell. These things, remember one of the principles, the home buyer buying principles is if it's easy to buy, it's going to be hard to sell. Uh, and, and you need to really know that from a local aspect. And on that, scarcity. So scarcity, we always say, is really important that you've got to have something that's in demand, but there's not a lot of them. Like, you know, your lovely Queenslander behind you there. I would think that, you know, if if the the brick home would in Queensland, in Brisbane, would be scarce, all right, but not highly not sought, sought after. after. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you can have odd or scarce. Scarce is good, odd is bad. Um, you've got to be very mindful of overdevelopment and then you've got to be also aware of poor floor plans. But you know what? The big common denominator across the better performers in all of these 11 examples? Hit us with it, Veronica. Here's your punchline. The value add. All the ones that did particularly well have had, even if it's just a cheap and cheerful renovation, they've actually had some improvement. Um, so something has been put into them yeah. to add on top of, and this is the nature of compounding growth. So an investment in the property will lead to compounding growth relative to, to what happens in the market and the popularity of that particular property. But if you put money into it and it's well thought out money, it's money that is put in the right place in the right way without overcapitalizing or adding things that people aren't going to want, then you're compounding that investment as well. Yeah, so I was quite amazed at that. I mean, I mean, I've done it myself instinctively, like in my yeah. own properties. But I really was amazed that that at all these examples, that really was the one common thread, and they're all very different properties as we've discussed. Yeah. Um, now, also, um, I guess you know, at the end of the day, I just want to make a warning about this. That I just want you to be careful about making generalizations. Mm around some of these examples and certainly you know if you go and watch the video as well be very careful it does not mean that all apartments are bad it does not mean that all villas are good it does not mean that house and land packages um can't lose your money you know you've got to be very careful and and we just really want to make you know sure that, that we encourage you to look deeper into data because there's always a story and that story can reveal whether a property will perform or underperform in this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.